Explorer. I'm Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the mariner's point of view, port by port. In this series, we discover the important intersections between sailing, culture, and life, past, present, and future. And let me introduce our host, a producer, writer, director, raconteur, Mr. Scott Dodson. Thank you, Todd. I started um, sailing uh, with my grandfather. I was uh, very young. He had a little cutty sailboat, and we sailed around Egg Harbor in New Jersey. I was instantly attracted to the boat and the water. I loved the wood. I loved the sails. I, I loved everything about it. I love when the boat tilted over the family. We laugh about that because I used to laugh so hard when the boat was tilting over and everybody was afraid, and I thought it was the best thing. I love the thrill of catching a gust of wind in the sail and heeling over, accelerating across the bay. I just loved the whole art of sailing. I spent the summers in Ocean City, New Jersey, and my friend George and I found a brand-new Hobie cat in the surf off the beach. One of the pontoons had lost a plug and it was half sunk. I guess George and I were about 13 years old or so. So it was, you know, sail and everything. Whoever owned it just, it sank and they walked away from it. We reported it like good little Boy Scouts to the lifeguard and we waited to see who would come get the the Hobie cat. Well, as it turns out, no one did. And, And it ended up being our boat for like an entire summer and in fact i still think that boat's probably sitting outside his house because no one ever came to pick it up so when i was 15 my grandfather helped me buy a brand new hershoff designed 21 foot sloop for 850 bucks that doesn't seem like much but in 1967 850 bucks was a lot of money that was my first boat I sailed that boat up and down the Jersey coast. In fact, I actually sailed it all the way up to Bar Harbor, Maine, and back. I just became obsessed about going places. I raced International 14s. Then I was drafted and went to Thailand during the war. That's the Vietnam War. And I rode in every possible boat I could possibly could ride in. I went back to sea as a tugboat captain in New York Harbor. I delivered boats all over the world, and finally, after making some dough, writing movies, I bought my own CT-54 and started a charter business in the Virgin Islands and Greece. I crossed the Atlantic 18 times, round trip. After that, I skippered mega yachts in the Med. I worked on ore boats in the Great Lakes. I ran tugboats in New York Harbor. Um, lots of little stories that are involved in there, which is sort of the whole point of this podcast is to tell some of the stories that are connected with being a sailor in the world. That's interesting. And so when you say the mariner's point of view, what, what does that mean? Well, let me try to define it in the best way I can. Um, first of all, let's consider the physical condition of the mariner. If you've ever been on a boat, most people experience a physical change because of the movement. They they range from simple dizziness to nausea and worse seasickness. 
These symptoms are caused by an imbalance between your eyes and your inner ear. The inner ear is saying, hey, your balance is off, danger. But your eye says, hey, we're cool, there's a horizon. The inner ear takes some time to sort of adjust. But after, it does. Sailors go through this experience and eventually calm the inner ear and the pitching and rolling of the ship become kind of the new normal. So no seasickness is required. You might find a similar experience on land is sort of like doing yoga for an extended period of time. Uh, it kind of gets you into that physical, psychological state. I like to call it a feeling of sublime zen. The other part is more of a philosophical part. While you're in this sort of state of zen, because of the motion and the movement of the, of the boat, you're also in, philosophically, you're isolated. When you're on a boat, there's nothing you can do about the past. The future is just a waypoint on the horizon. You only have the present, so it sort of forces you to be in the present. And those tasks that are required of you in the present focus your mind. They create a kind of clarity combined with the physicalness that you're experiencing. It gives you a whole new sense of what life is and the human experience. Now, I will say that when you step off the boat and you begin to look at things, colors seem brighter, the whole food tastes better, everything seems to be more exciting in that regard. And that's what we're hoping to achieve in our podcast and in our show. That's great. So in terms of this heightened sense of clarity and calmness that you get, is that something that is common to everybody that goes out sailing? Yeah, it is actually. It is. And in a weird way, that feeling is reproduced. It's been reproduced all through history. So when you go do that, you're going to have the same feeling that, say, Nelson, Admiral Nelson felt, right? Or the first Phoenicians that were rowing around the Med at the time. You can't stop it. You know, I mean, it's yeah. like, it's just everybody shares in the same thing. So in that sense, if you look at history and you look at sailing and captains and all the people who involved in it, Everybody had the same feeling. And if you look at the literature that surrounds the mariner, okay, you will, you will see that this is often mentioned as a very sublime point to understanding sailing and traveling on the ocean. As you're traveling all these to ports, you must meet a lot of interesting people and see a lot of new and interesting things. Well, yeah, obviously. Um, yeah, one of the things that happens is when you, you, you have this sort of energy coming out of you that other people see. And when they see it, they, they, you, they sort of gravitate towards you. Okay, and, and many times I've been in ports where I was the only American. They hadn't seen an American in years. You know, they'd say, oh, yeah, whatever. And, and it would be re really kind of strange, okay? And other times I've been where, you know, people will come up and say, come to my house. I want you to meet my family. And I would do that. Be very generous. I mean, I went to a wedding. I was invited to a wedding in Turkey one time that lasted a week. They wouldn't let me leave. 
I had one set of clothes. They gave me clothes to wear. They went out in the garage and they brought me clothes. They they owned a clothing store somewhere, and and it was the craziest wedding that I'd ever been to. It it was hilarious. The generosity and the camaraderie was just amazing. So there is a lot of that. Thank you to our founding sponsors, DG Entertainment, for providing the facilities for this podcast. Robbie Davis and his staff for the best in the business. We also want to thank Greg Vivaldi over at Grimelli Industries for their constant and loving support. Yeah, one of the interesting things, well, what I hope is interesting is, is I have a lot of stories to tell. And the show is all about those stories because they illustrate the convergence between humanity, art, food, adventure, all of those sorts of things. And I know a lot of people can't stop their life and go jump on a sailboat and sail to Turkey um, as much as they'd like to. They, they won't do that. But I've done it, and hopefully I can talk about some of the experiences that I've had. So one of the stories that I have that I've titled, it's called A Passing Conversation, which is an illustration of what happens a lot of time on the dock and when you meet new people in a port. You have this, just this small conversation, just, hey, how you doing? You find out that maybe you have something in common with this person for some reason. Maybe, you know, it's a Thai fisherman. But this is a story that is about a Turkish man. I sailed into Marmaris, Turkey in the late spring from my base in Rhodes, Greece. Marmaris Bay is nearly enclosed by land. When you reach the mouth or the cut of the bay, you could smell the rich, loamy soil of Asia. Honeybees fly around the boat. They light, they groom themselves, and fly back to their hives. There is a modern marina boatyard near Old Town Market of Marmaris. Big hotels dot the northern shoreline. They added an airport a number of years ago, which spurred tourism and development. But once you walk away, a little ways out of town, you're in rural Turkey. It's a kind of time travel. I was directed via VHF radio to a slip by my old friend Omar. Omar is a big burly man with a sweet disposition. We met 10 years before, and he has been my agent in Turkey for all those years. As an aside, an agent finds you a slip in a marina when there are none. He clears us into customs and immigration as our representative. He makes money along the way. If I need a part for a boat or a dinner reservation, Omar is my guy. In my opinion, agents are worth every penny. They save you time, money, and security. Having a paid representative to stand between you and your million-dollar yacht and a less scrupulous official is very wise. He always meets us at the slip and catches our lines. He carries a VHF radio and a notebook. Once we are moored, he helps with electricity and the water. He always asks, is there anything we need? Then he bounces onto the boat, and we greet each other like there's no tomorrow. 
The greeting ceremony is normal and very sincere. We have a drink of Greek orange Fanta. That's Omar's favorite. For some reason, Greek orange Fanta tastes different than any other Fanta in the world. It's more akin to Argina. I always brought a case or two for Omar. My mate puts a little bowl of dried fruits and nuts on the aft table. Dinner is always offered. Omar politely thanks us and declines, a ritual we've done for years, all according to a set ritual, sharing our kindness and respect. Some years before, Omar was waiting for me inside the salon of the boat because it was raining. A picture of me when I was in the 82nd Airborne laid loose on the table. Omar immediately became animated when he saw it. We are brothers, he shouted. He bear-hugged me. Brothers, brothers, brothers. That day, Omar drank a brandy with me. He is a Muslim, and he didn't drink, but for, the, for him, this was a transcendent moment. He served in the Turkish Airborne and jumped into Cyprus during the Civil War. We were brothers from different wars. After that drink, our relationship changed. We were friends and comrades, Turkish and American brothers. I was invited to dinner. He sent his son up to guide me to his house on the mountain. It was a new home. The area around the house was muddy. His son, maybe six years old, waved and spoke to everyone in sight as we walked up the path. I was a brother and a boat captain. Association is a very powerful mechanism in Turkish society, good and bad. We walked some way up the side of the mountain. A cobblestone path, whitewashed walls, meandered like a drunken goat. Little gardens with basil, coriander, and rosemary grew in orderly lines next to the tomato seedlings. Out near the steeper part of the mountain, children dressed in raggedy t-shirts, sweatshirts, and red plastic boots picked blackberries from the towering wall of blackberry bushes. They enthusiastically waved to us. Thrushes scattered over their heads, leading to screeching in protest. The house was newly built. Unfinished cinder block walls waited for stucco. Rebar protruded out above the walls. Later, I asked Omar why all the homes had rebar sticking up along the roof and walls. He said two basic reasons. His father's land was prone to earthquakes, so they used rebar to secure the home from falling down on their heads, and one doesn't have to pay the full tax on the house until it is finished. So nobody finishes their houses. There were homes there that hadn't been finished in 50 years, so nobody paid the full tax. There were three stories and five bedrooms, very sparsely decorated. The unpainted plaster walls made the house feel industrial. It was a work in progress, said Omar assuredly. Omar greeted me with a big hug. I was introduced to his father, mother, wife, four sons, and two daughters. The daughters spoke British English. Omar had sent them to school overseas. His boys would follow when they were old enough. Going to school overseas remains a significant status symbol. The university system in Turkey is well regarded. But because Omar works with foreign crews, 
he has adopted an internationalist view of the world. His father, although happy and proud his son could build such a fine house, was deeply suspicious of foreigners, as a lot of people in Turkey are. The family and I gathered around the table. I don't speak Turkish. Omar and his two daughters translated. Sometimes Omar would turn to his sons and ask them if they understood what I said. They nodded and kept eating. Omar concluded they didn't and laughed. He had hopes. After dinner, we sat outside on a bench against a whitewashed wall with the spring sun on our face. We knew each other well enough. We really didn't care about propriety. In our passing conversation, we relived the moment. We gripped the handlebars of our bikes as we raced down that steep hill where our manhood, our recklessness, our daredevil sense of living was forged by near catastrophe. We shared intimate details about that girl in school that drove us to near madness with desire. We searched our memory banks for that song that identified us to our cool new friends. Omar has always loved Western culture, especially American culture. We recited bits from that show that tickled our fancies so long ago. For Omar, shows were dubbed in Turkish from a German version. We laughed very hard about the misconceptions around Fonzie on Happy Days. It was clear to me the morality of dating around was an unacceptable behavior. We grew closer, laughed harder, and told personal stories about our experiences in war. Omar's culture wasn't open to confession and emotional declarations. A man was a man, simple. Nothing to talk about. He shared with me. I shared with him. Then, like a bolt of lightning struck him, he shut down the conversation and offered to take me wild boar hunting the next morning. For the record, I'm not a hunter. I was caught up in the moment, as one does, and agreed. The next morning at six, Omar was standing behind my boat, dressed in his army fatigues. We hit the road. We drove four hours up the Dalman River. This is some of the most beautiful country I have ever seen. It reminded me of the upper Delaware River in the United States. We stopped by a rustic taverna. I thought I was in the middle of an American Western movie set. Horses, lances, stuffed boar's heads, stuffed animal heads. This wasn't an American movie set. It was a 17th century Turkish life in motion. I mounted a very hairy horse and was handed a lance. The lance was about eight feet long. Omar was giggling the whole time at my reaction. I asked, where's my rifle? Our guide had a musket. Yes, a musket. One shot, musket. Looking aghast and ready to quit this insanity, a pack of full-grown Great Danes loped around the corner of the restaurant. The Great Danes would hunt and corner the boar. I would, because I was the American guest, ride into the melee and stick the boar with my lance. If I missed and the boar got away from the dogs, he would most likely attack 
and the guide would shoot the boar as a last resort. Great plan. We rode for about an hour, and during that time, Omar came clean. Normally, Turks don't hunt wild boar because of religious reasons, but his people were an exception. Hunting was about bonding, especially this kind of ancient hunting. The dogs began to yelp. They raced into the thick brush. We followed, riding down a small animal path. My shaggy horse bolted down the path. I hung on for my life, my lance in hand. I was raked to the bone by vines, branches, and thorns. I nearly lost my lance. Omar and the guide took a fork in the road in another direction. I burst into a small clearing. There, with its back hairs up and its 20-inch tusks thrusting at two of the Great Danes, both bleeding, was a 200-pound boar giving no quarter. As I note, I was thinking small pig this entire trip. My shaggy horse reared up and charged the boar on its own, despite my prostrations to the contrary. I leveled the lance and drove it into the mouth of the raging boar, the boar ripped the spear sideways out of my hand. I fell off the shaggy horse. The boar stumbled and laid on a patch of ivy. He snorted a couple of times, then died. I stood up. I was cut, bruised. And I yanked the spear from the boar's mouth, and I screamed, I hate death. I hate death. The Great Danes whimpered and licked their wounds, keeping close to me, unsure if the deed had been done. A few minutes later, Omar and the guide came crashing through the brush into the bloody clearing. Omar leaped off his horse and ran to the boar. The guide quickly checked his wounded dogs. The other dogs of the pack surrounded their wounded brethren and licked their wounds. There was concern with everyone. I stood at the center of the clearing, my lance pointing to the sky. Omar grabbed me by the shoulders and hugged me. Brothers, true brothers. He and the guide knelt on the ground and prayed to Allah. Three days later, I was reading a book in the cockpit of my boat when Omar came bounding up the gangway. He was there to invite me to his house for dinner of wild boar. I said I really wasn't interested in eating wild boar. He smiled and suggested Italian. We had a pleasant dinner. I drank a bottle of wine and Omar, an orange Fanta. He softly talked over his empty plate. You see, our stories are about nuances of who we are and how we got here. Inside our life, there are a series of personal, undefinable moments that only we know have significance. As we get older, there seems to be this flooding of incidents that populate our personal timeline. These incidents rarely have anything to do with major events, like fighting in a war, buying your first house, killing a boar with a lance on a horse, we always remember the sparkling bits. We'll remember the day 
whether it was sunny or cloudy, warm or cold. We'll remember the friendship and the vein of brotherhood it has opened up for us. The experience you bring is in me, and the experience I bring is in you. This richness of life came from a passing conversation. He sat back in his chair and smiled. That was great. So when you met Omar, what was your first impression of him? Omar was your... Omar was kind of scary. He was, he's a big guy. He's about 6'3", I guess. And and he's very hairy, Turkish guy. He looks like he he looks like the guy the turkey don't want to mess with. But he's also like the sweetest man. You yeah, he's super sweet, super nice. Wow. So so hopefully uh, we'll see him again in some of these stories. Um, and he's still there in Turkey, right? Yeah, he is. He actually he's sort of the main guy in in uh, Gino's Marine. They they do all the uh, agenting in that part. I actually used him for a number of things. I went to, I took the boat down to Anatolia, which is in the southern part of Turkey, and um, it's they call it the anvil of life down there because of the the mountains in the desert. It, it gets ridiculously hot, like 120 degrees hot and dry. And this is where the first man is supposed to have come from. At least that's one of the theories. But all I saw were flies and heat. And the heat is at night, too. It's like a hairdryer on high in your face all day and all night. It's, it's a really hard place. But it's where a lot of history took place. Wow. So did you ever get around to trying the wild boar? Yes, actually, I did. They they brought the they brought the wild boar. His his wife brought the wild boar over, all wrapped up in a aluminum foil. I, I guess that's what you would call it. It was more like it was aluminum sheet plate. But it uh, yes, yeah, she brought it over, and um, we put we put it on the table, and we cut it up, and we started to eat it. It's extremely gamey. I'd imagine uh, so. It's it's um, you know it's. It's an interesting flavor. She had actually soaked it in red wine and spices. So it was very, it, it almost, the spices were almost sweet. Mm. Um, I couldn't tell you what was in it, to be honest. But uh, I know there was garlic in it, that's for sure. I had a few bites of it. Um, you know. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend, I wouldn't recommend her recipe. You know. <laughs> That's that's the thing about going places is that, you know, some people they want to cook for you, and it's like, oh, this is your recipe. You know, this is the this is my favorite recipe. They will say, this is the best thing I cook. And then you then you eat it and you realize that they have absolutely no taste whatsoever, and it's horrible. I, I had that experience in Finland. Um, they were going to make steaks for us, and they they did this thing to a steak that was just sacrilegious. Mm. And it, the steak was horrible. I couldn't eat it. It was a crime against steak. Crime against steak. Yeah. Exactly. 
Um, all right. Well, we'll save that story for another time. Thank you for tuning in. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to leave us a review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas. There we go. They say that time is like a never-ending battle. Come on, come on, come on, come on. They say that if you're standing still, that time loses.